We shall turn now to the Word of God, to the chapter read, the chapter 6 of the book of the Revelation, and we may read the first verse just now of this chapter. And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering and to conquer. The previous Lord's Day that we were considering this book, we uh, spent our time in the fifth chapter at the great coronation and inauguration of the glorious, exalted Redeemer. What an event it truly is as recorded and depicted for us. And uh, no doubt uh, the heavens rejoiced as John did and the church rejoices with John when they are able to see the lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, coming to take his place at the right hand of the majesty and high, taking his rightful place as the Lamb in the midst of the throne, so that it becomes the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, we must understand that when he takes his place, he takes this scroll with the seven seals into his hand. He cannot take the throne unless he can take the scroll. He is not fit to occupy, as we pointed out the last time we were considering it, just as intimation is made to ensure that any minister who's going to occupy the pulpit, intimation is made, there anything against him, it has to be substantiated before the presbytery and so on. So here the angel, the mighty angel, intimates that there is one to take this book out of the hand of the majesty of heaven, but he has to be worthy. He must meet with the approval of God. He must be qualified. He must have all the necessary qualifications to occupy this position and execute the decrees that are contained in this book, this scroll with the seven seals. Now here in chapter 6, we see the Lamb now in the midst of the throne, the mighty Lion of the tribe of Judah, now exercising his power. Now he begins to demonstrate his ability and to manifest his qualifications. He has taken the book. No one has been able even to look upon it no one is able to open the seals. Now he begins to open them so that the content of this book is to be revealed. But before coming to the actual opening of these seals, and particularly the first seal, let's just uh, go back to the previous chapter to the great assembly where we have angels and archangels, elders and the four beasts, thousands, we are told, 
10,000 uh, times 10,000 and thousands of thousands lifting up their voice on this great occasion singing this new song that the universe has never heard before because there never was such an occasion before. But there is something that I don't want to overlook. It's very important, very encouraging for those who are the praying people of God. In verse 8 of the chapter 5, when we, we read, when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. Having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, most becoming on this great occasion. On such occasions even yet, there is a great deal of preparation goes into royal occasions for coronations and uh, uh, men and women spend much time making the necessary preparations, flowers and flags and bunting and so on to make it special. Here, when the Lamb takes the book, when he's to now take his place enthroned in the throne of glory, the beasts and the elders representing the church and the ways of God, the providence of God, they bow down before him, they fall down before him, they do homage to him. It's as though they're recognizing him as their monarch, their king. In the part of the world where I was born and where I was reared, there is a town on the coast of Antrim, it's called Carrickfergus. And to this day, if you go down to the harbor, there is a disc in the ground, and there it is uh, remembered that King William III, when he arrived to defeat King James and liberate Europe from the clutches of Popery in Rome, there's a plaque in the ground reminding those who come, this is where King William first set his foot. And it's still depicted throughout the province, history, still depicts the scene. What do you see? You see the king coming off his barge. What are the all the dignitaries doing? They're coming forward and they're kneeling and they are taking his hand to welcome him to the throne of Britain. And here they are doing just that. They are the heavenly dignitaries, as it were. And they're here bowing down to acknowledge his worthiness, to acknowledge he is worthy to take the throne, and they are now owning him as their rightful king. But there's something else to notice. They have harps. It's a very joyful occasion. They have harps heralding the the moment of the great coronation and golden vials full of odors. Full of odors, what it means is sweet incense. A fragrance, a special fragrance for the occasion. And notice what this fragrance consists of, which are the prayers of saints. Now, if you go through the scriptures and you look at what we read of heaven and the atmosphere 
and all the details regarding heaven itself. And you read here, what is it that is the fragrance in heaven? Oh, you might say, it has to be the Son of God himself, the great king we were reading and singing about in Psalm 45. And that is true. But here we have this fragrance in heaven. And we might say, well, that must come from the lily of the valley. That must surely come from the rose of Sharon. Isn't this how the Savior's beauty is depicted for us in the Old Testament? But it doesn't say that. Which are the prayers of the saints. And they might be the poorest saints ever. And they might even think, I hardly know how to pray. And my poor poor prayers, my poor, weak, feeble prayers, they hardly amount sometimes to little more than a groan, little more than a sigh. And you might be thinking, I wouldn't even want anyone to hear me praying. I stumble around. I hardly know what to say. I'm not very articulate. I'm not very good at expressing myself. What do we read here? The greatest event in history. The greatest event in the universe. With all its pageantry. And all its glamour and glory. Heavenly, sinless glamour and glory. Where's the fragrance of the occasion coming from? The prayers of the saints. The prayers of the saints are the fragrance of heaven. Isn't that something? They are the incense, the sweet odors of heaven. Now, how does that come about? How would they fit into this occasion? Well, what did the Savior teach us to pray? When thou prayest, what are we to say? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What's this song all about? What is this occasion all surrounding The great name of him who is holy, holy, holy. What are they doing? They are fulfilling the decree of the Father. What are we, what do the saints pray? Thy will be done in heaven as in earth. In earth rather as in heaven. Thy will be done. And here is the fragrance of the harmonizing of the prayers of the saints of God with the will of the Father. He will crown his son as he exalts him. And the saints are saying, thy will be done. That's what they want. They've been praying for this. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Here it is. There's a fragrance in that prayer when God the Father uh, receives it into heaven. And here's a poor saint of God stumbling. They feel so worthless and so unprofitable at times. But this is the heart desire. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And there's a fragrance with that. God delights in it. He delights to receive that prayer as we have it here. Now then, this should be a tremendous encouragement for you and I who might sometimes think My poor prayers don't amount to very much. Maybe John even thought that. 
Maybe some of the saints that he was writing to might have felt that way. But here is what John sees. The prayers of the godly are not wasted. They are a fragrance in the presence of God. They are so important. They are here mentioned, connected with this glorious event, the coronation of the great king himself. Now then, you see in this fifth chapter, also the whole of the universe joining together, we're told in verse 13, every creature which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them, heard I saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb forever and forever. And then when we come to chapter 6, now we see the king seated. He has the book in his hand. Now, we are not to imagine when God's word tells us that God hath exalted him to the Father's right hand. He is now the lamb in the midst of the throne that he somehow or other just sits in that throne. Now today we might, if, if some stranger were to come and visit the United Kingdom or even Australia as part of the Commonwealth, Who's on the throne at the moment? Well, the answer's quite clear. Queen Elizabeth II. Who occupies the throne of the Commonwealth or United Kingdom? Queen Elizabeth II. But that doesn't mean she spends her time seven days a week sitting on her throne. She doesn't. She is recognized as on the throne, but because she has a right to sit in that throne and occupy it, what does she do? She fulfills royal engagements. She exercises her authority in kingdom activities. What do we have when we come to chapter 6? We have now the king himself beginning to open the book. Now he reveals what is in that book. And he, as we've already noted in the past, his, he is able to open the book because he agrees with everything in it. His will is one with the Father's. He doesn't contradict anything. His mind, his purpose is not in conflict with the fathers, or with anything within that book. And so now he begins to reveal to John, this is the revelation, we must keep it in mind, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here he is revealed to us now in the throne. He is now revealed to us, beginning to exercise his power opening the seals to unlock the mysteries that are in that book. Now here in the first part of the chapter 6, we may concentrate our minds upon the opening of the first four seals because they are, as you can see, well, they're all connected, but they are very particularly connected, these first four seals. Now, let us keep in mind what we're viewing. It's as though you take a book that has seven chapters. And you read one chapter, and then you go to the next chapter, you finish that, you go to the next chapter. Now, I know that this is not an an accurate depicting, but it gives us some idea. One seal is opened, 
and then a certain amount of the content is revealed, then another seal is opened, we go further into the contents and so on. But you will see throughout this book, the revelation, I don't have to tell you, I'm sure, the repetition of the number seven over and over and over again. And as you've heard me often say, the number seven in the Hebrew mind is always symbolic of completion and perfection and wholeness. That was in the Hebrew mind. If anything was perfect, it was seven as it were. Now, why have we so many sevens? We have the glorious Redeemer. He's got seven stars in his hand. He walks among seven golden candlesticks. He has seven eyes, which are the seven spirits before the throne of God. He has here seven seals to open. There will be seven trumpets blown. There will be seven vials poured out. What is this all telling us? It's the book of perfection. It's the revelation of the perfections of the glorious Christ and the revelation of the perfections of his kingdom and the perfections of his administration of the kingdom. And this must surely be a wonderful revelation to John. There he is in the Isle of Patmos, forced probably to work in the mines and so on, wondering about the future of the church, and then to be shown, John, look at the perfections. Remember where he begins, a door is opened in heaven. He's to come into the heavenly sphere. Rising his mind or raising his mind above the earth where there's nothing but imperfection. The seven churches, imperfection, imperfection, imperfection in the churches. Imperfection in the earthly manifestation of Christ's kingdom. Imperfections in the church that has to be sanctified, the bride that is eventually to be without spot and without blemish. But here's where John is led. John, come and see the perfection. Everything's in order, John. Nothing's out of place. No blemish here. No mistakes here. Everything's perfect. The administration by this king of the Father's will, opening the seals, unfolding the mysteries, it's all to be done to perfection. This is a beautiful book, the book of the Revelation. Now then, he opens the first seal. I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder. The noise of thunder, a manifestation of divine power. And I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder, one of the four beasts saying, come and see. Now, many of the scholars disagree as to this little expression here, or invitation, come and see. Many of the original texts is just simply come. And the authorized version has it come and see. And uh, many are of the mind, you see, that the invitation is more of a command 
to come forth, calling forth the horse and its rider. Come now. And then John is to see. But what we have to appreciate is everything now that takes place is issuing forth from the throne, directed from that throne and nowhere else. As we consider these uh, opening of these seals, well, we have to, as we've already mentioned, the sevens will come later to seven trumpets that are blown. And then events following that. Seven vials that are poured out and the events bound up with them. Here, as the seals are opened, if you read very much, you will find, perhaps it was more in the past than today, but many a time you will take a book And either at the beginning of the book or at the beginning of each chapter, you have a summary. And it summarizes the content of that chapter. Doesn't tell you everything. It doesn't give you all the details, but it summarizes it. And then when you enter in to read the chapter, you know where you're going and you know what to expect. And that's what we have here, the opening of the seals. It's the summary that will later be detailed. And that's what we have to keep in mind. When we uh, have the first seal opened, we just have this description of a white horse and its rider riding forth, conquering and to conquer. And we might think, well, what does that all mean? That's the summary. Later on then, we come to the detail and we find out more about what happens when this white horse and its rider rides forth. Just simply to prove the point, if you go over to chapter 17, we have there the verse 14 These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and King of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Who is this? In chapter 19, we have his various names, and he is, uh, verse 11, he's called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And uh, then in verse 13, his name is called the Word of God. And then in verse 16, he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, who is this? Well, you can see he is the one that is followed by an army of those like unto himself. Verse 14, the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, and that he should smite the nations, and so on. And uh, you will find this rider on this white horse appearing Again and again. But here we have merely the summary. He just goes forth conquering and to conquer. We're told that the nations make war with the Lamb. And he overcomes them. Now, I have to say right away that some of the modern commentators and modern scholars disagree Uh, about who this person is. Some will say he's the Antichrist. Others will say it is just symbolic of the nations at war. It really is symbolic of the warlords throughout the earth who are fighting and uh, making war, going out to conquer. 
But that makes no sense. Whenever we come to the red horse, because the red horse is clearly depicted as representing war. We are of the mind that this is none and cannot be anyone less than the glorious Christ himself. He, we are told, goes forth and there is given unto him a crown and he goes forth conquering and to conquer. He goes forth. He's unstoppable. He goes forth. He never turns back. He never surrenders an inch. He never knows defeat. He's constantly advancing, going forth, conquering and to conquer. He never knows anything of retreat. That's the picture. And thus, it cannot be any other than the glorious Christ. No matter how great the kings of this earth have been, and however great their victories, eventually their territory is given into the hands of another, and their victories are sometimes very short-lived. But what we have here is the one who goes forth conquering and to conquer. It's a complete victory. He routes every enemy. Now when you go over to the psalm that we were singing from earlier, Psalm 45, you have there unquestionably this very one, Psalm 45. And this is again the fragrance of the saints Their prayers. What are they praying? My heart, the psalmist says, is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. And then what do we find the church, the saints desiring? Verse 3. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh. Mighty king, glorious king of kings, gird thy sword upon thy thigh. O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty, take thy glory and thy majesty beyond the throne, Beyond, as it were, the heavenly precincts, the heavenly palace. Ride forth among the sons of men. Demonstrate thy power. Manifest thy glory. In thy majesty, ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness and so on. Verse 5, thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. No one comes and defeats this king and takes his crown and takes his throne or makes him a serf. No. He goes forth conquering and to conquer. Thy throne is forever and ever, O God. What do we find in the first chapter of the epistle to the Hebrews? These very words in this psalm are actually quoted so that we don't have one doubt as to who they actually apply Hebrews 1, and this is what God says to the angels. Verse uh, 7, unto the angels he saith, he maketh his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. And then before the angels he says this to the Son, 
unto the Son, he said, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the church acquiesces. Psalmist is acquiescing. God says, thy throne is forever and ever. And the psalmist says, thy throne is forever and ever. His mind is in agreement with the mind of God. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of thy kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore, God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with oil of gladness above thy fellows, and so on. Now here, when the first seal is opened, there comes forth this white horse, ridden by one who is crowned, and he goes forth conquering. And he never turns back, He never experiences defeat. He never knows anything of the meaning of retreat. He goes forth constantly, advancing. He's progressing in every step that he takes until we come to what is written in 1 Corinthians. And there in the chapter 15, Paul is speaking there of the resurrected Glorious Christ. And then, verse 24, we read these words. First <clears throat> Corinthians 15, verse 24. Then cometh the end. It's all over now. Then cometh the end. When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God... Even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. And then look at what we read now. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. Last enemy. There are no enemies after that. He's defeated every last one of them. And the last enemy is who? Death. He has destroyed death. Now going back to the chapter we're in, in Revelation chapter 6, what do we read? We read of four horses Four horsemen, it is fascinating to find how men, women likewise, who don't have any time for God, don't have any place for his word, they will make films, they will write books about the apocalypse. And I have I actually have a book, maybe more than one, titles are often very similar, written by uh, secular writers. The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. They're fascinated with what is written in this book. They don't want to believe it, but they're fascinated by it. It Quickens the imagination to think, what is it like? If this is really the end of the world, what's it going to be like? And the general picture that you find when you read their descriptions of what happens is utter chaos. The world coming to an end in complete chaos. War and famine and disaster and disease and the world that we live in imploding in on itself. Just chaos and destruction as man destroys himself. Now that is part of the reason 
that many ordinary people don't want to think about it. They will say, well, yes, this world isn't going to last forever. We all know that. It'll come to an end. It'll go out of existence. And I suppose it'll not be pleasant. And what do people do? They think it may end in a nuclear war. Disaster for the human race. So we better prepare for it. And we better try to find some way of surviving it. It'll be terrible. It'll be awful. John here is shown the glorious king who's ruling and reigning and there is no disorder. There is no chaos. Perfection everywhere in his administration. And here we see with regard to the four horses it's very interesting what is said. Verse 2 A crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. He's on the throne. He's now in charge of the kingdom. And now he's putting his kingdom in order. Then we read verse 4. There went out another horse which was red. And notice what it says. And power was given unto him that sat thereon. Power was given him. He didn't have it himself. Didn't possess it. But he is given it. He is given it from that throne. Power to take peace from the earth. Power given from the Prince of Peace to take peace from the earth. These are judgments, as we shall see. Then we read that they should kill one another, and there was given unto him a great sword. You see what we're seeing? See what John sees? Controlled power. Controlled activity from the throne. It's given. It's given, and there are limits, as you will see, put upon it. Verse 5, or verse 6, rather, I heard a voice. This is regarding the third horse and his rider. A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see, thou hurt not the oil and the wine. Yes, famine... Scarcity of food, hardship, but see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. You may use your power not to excess, but within limits. Limits that are dictated from this throne. Look at what we read then in verse 8. And power... Death and hell followed with them. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the earth. Power was given. From where is it given? From the throne. So you can see here that The throne is in control. These agents go forth from the throne as it were commissioned from the Redeemer's throne to exercise power in order to bring about the fulfillment of his redemptive purposes. And you can see there are constraints and restraints and limitations put upon their power. They just can't do as they like. Oh, there are those around in our world today and they basically think. You hear America and Russia and China, the superpowers, the superpowers. 
But what do we read here? Limited powers. This one we're told who took the book out of the hand of the occupant of the throne. What do we read? Verse 6 in chapter 5. I beheld as he comes to take the book. And lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a, a lamb, the lion of the tribe of Judah, standing as a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns. We noted what the horns represented in Daniel, Ezekiel, horns of power. He has seven horns. The perfection of power. He knows exactly how to use that power. How to execute his authority. And here are all the other powers. Limited. Exercising his will to fulfill his purpose. Now, we note it. 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is what? Death. Who is riding on this white horse? Crown was given unto him. He's crowned. He's legally, royally the king going forth to manifest his power to occupy his kingdom, to rule his kingdom, to advance his kingdom. He goes forth conquering and to conquer the very last enemy. He is described earlier in the book of the Revelation as who? The first and the last. The first, the Alpha and the Omega, the first And the last. What do we see here in the opening of the four seals? First four seals. Who's the first? Glorious Redeemer rides forth. The great conqueror rides forth. He's the first to appear. He's the first to advance. He's before all others. His purposes are before any other purposes. Oh, whoever may ride on the red horse or the black horse, they may have their purposes, their intentions, but he goes first. He goes forth to conquer, and he goes forth to finally conquer even the last enemy. Who's the last horse? Verse 8 of chapter 6. I looked. When he opens the fourth seal, he, it's a pale horse we see. I looked, verse 8, and behold, a pale horse, a sickly horse. And his name that sat on him, no others are named specifically, but this writer is. His name was death, and hell followed with him. His name is death. He's going out with devastating power throughout the world of men. Power was given unto him over the fourth part of the earth, To kill with the sword and with hunger and with death and with the beasts of the feet. But he doesn't go forth conquering and to conquer. Neither does the rider on the red horse go forth conquering and to conquer. It is he who is in the white horse. He outrides all the others. He goes forth when their work is finished. He is still riding forth. When they have exercised their devastating power, he is still riding forth until he conquers all his enemies. 
No one are left, including death. The other writers have a work to perform. But his work is completed only when their work is long done. A white horse, glorious redeemer, as we shall see him later, as I said, these are but the summaries, the details are filled in later, and we see how he rides forth, what is happening when he rides forth, and so on. When he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see, the voice of providence is calling. Look at now what is happening. What do we expect might come from the Lamb in the midst of the throne, the Prince of Peace? What might we expect him to commission? What kind of activity might we expect? There went out another horse. By the way, the word horse here that's used, it is the war horse. That's really the, it's not an ordinary horse, it's the war horse. Another war horse was red. Power was given to him that sat upon him to take peace from the earth. Now you see what John is seeing. Things as they really are. The church in the midst of all this. Peace is taken away. But the church isn't taken away. Peace is removed And men are slaughtering. That's what it means. They slaughtered one another. They slaughtered one another. They rose up against one another. They slaughtered one another. Peace is taken away. And the church is still there in the midst of it all. And even when the peace is taken away, the white horse is still going forth. He rides forth In the midst of all this, he's advancing in the midst of all this warfare and all this slaughter and all the hatred that men are manifesting toward one another. He's still riding forth, conquering and to conquer while they slaughter one another. We're told that they should kill one another and there was given him a great sword. Now when it comes to the fifth seal open, with the cry of the martyrs. There are two different words used for sword in the book of the Revelation. And the word that is used here was, uh, it means a short sword. The kind of weapon that was used to slay the victims on the day of atonement or the Passover. And the idea is, That amidst all this slaughter, the church is suffering. The saints have to suffer. And yet, in spite of this, the glorious gospel keeps advancing. The rider on the white horse keeps going forward. Nothing can stop him. But it's the real world John is seeing. The church is living and existing in the real world, where from the very beginning, whenever Cain slew Abel, there was war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Neither are those who got strange ideas into their heads about the Christ of God. And in our day, there are many Christians, and if you ask them to tell you what they know of God's Christ, you know what they would be presenting you with? Some effeminate, weak kind of person that has to really bow to the desires 
and the intentions and purposes of men. What do we read in verse 16 of this very chapter? Here are men so desperately afraid, terrified by the sight of this Lamb, the meek and the lowly Redeemer. They are terrified by his presence And the very expression on his face, they are saying to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us. Hide us. I tell you, I would not like to be among such. You imagine gospel hearers. Pointed in the gospel, behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And they're pointed to a Savior. And they reject him. And they despise him. They say away with him. Then they are brought one day to face that very one. And they are desperate to hide. They are searching for anywhere to hide from the Lamb. Because why? The great day of his wrath is come. He's the king. And he is going to take vengeance on all his enemies. You and I ought to think about that. He goes forth with the gospel throughout the nations. And yes, there are those that reject him and there are those that submit to him as in the second psalm. The wrath of the Lamb because he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And his wrath is real wrath. Remember what he has suffered on Calvary. The wrath of God. He knows what it is. And men under the gospel have heard about the wrath of God, what it's like. They have heard they've been taken to Calvary to the cross. And they've heard there the agonizing cries of one who was experiencing the reality of God's wrath met upon him. Here are men now who mocked at that wrath, who despised the suffering Christ. And now they're looking for some way to escape from the very one that was offering them life in the preaching of the gospel. Hide us. Hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. My dear friends, this is most terribly solemn. The wrath of the Lamb. Who can begin to comprehend what that wrath will be like? Great men, mighty conquering men, we're told. Kings of the earth, great men, rich men, chief captains. Oh, they could, they could subdue their fellows. They could conquer the world. Here they are now. Feast with the wrath of the Lamb. There's no hiding place, no escape from that wrath. But here we see the the horses riding forth, the red horse of war, to take peace from the earth. God and Christ, the glorious King, doesn't have to put war into the hearts of men. It's there. 
No more did God have to issue an order from heaven to man, crucify my son, spit on him, pluck the hairs from his face, cry out your hatred against him and crucify him and put him to death. He didn't have to make a commandment. It was in the hearts of men to do it. God nevertheless overruled their cruelty, their hatred, their wickedness to bring about the fulfillment of his purpose. And here is the ride, the red horse of war and bloodshed, brutality. And my, haven't we seen that horse ride through the earth in history? Wasn't very long after John would write this book until there was that most awful slaughter in Jerusalem where thousands upon thousands were slaughtered by the Romans. The red horse was riding forth throughout the earth, taking peace from the earth, and he's still riding today. What were men saying about the great war? It was the war to finish all wars. How deceived they were. The red horse is still riding yet throughout the earth. And yet the amazing thing is, you see, God uses, Christ the glorious king actually uses All these activities, the black horse bringing famine and want and need into the experiences of men. They are hungering and are left with nothing and yet touch not, touch not, see thou hurt not the oil and the wine. The oil and the wine... Belong to the wealthy and the rich. People, uh, if they'd only read their Bibles, they'd understand their society better. And you hear about the poor. Oh, always, Pope's always talking about, we must remember the poor. And we must try to bring about an even and equal society. The one from the throne sends the black horse forth, bringing famine, bringing want, bringing need. It says here, a measure of wheat for a penny. Penny was really one man's wages for a day. A measure of wheat, what a Roman soldier received for his food for a day. A man will be able to survive on his own wage. He can't provide for his family. He can't provide for his children. And then three measures of barley, which was much less expensive. He can get three measures of barley, not wheat, poor diet, Not much sustenance in it. He may be able to feed his family. He can't pay his rent. This is coming from the throne, remember. These are the decrees that are being opened up through the breaking of this. These seals, these events are under the control of the mighty king of Zion. And yet God overrules. You think of the, just one incident, famine. The black horse riding through the earth. The result is, Jacob sends his sons down to Egypt. They end up brought by Joseph to Egypt. There they remain for 400 years in preparation for the great plan of redemption, 
when God will then make them a nation. And the uh, patriarchs become the foundation of the Old Testament national church. You take the famine that takes Naomi down into a foreign country to survive. What happens? When she returns, she brings Ruth out of idolatry and heathenism to become the wife of Boaz in the genealogy of the Savior. You see, all the adverse adverse events are under his control. In fact, if you go to Exodus chapter 15, and with this we better close. Exodus chapter 15, the song of Moses, whenever the children of Israel are redeemed out of Egypt. Listen to what Moses sings and the children of Israel in verse 3. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. He's a man of war. The Prince of Peace is a man of war. And these wars, the red horse, bringing slaughter and war, does not alter or change one iota of the divine purpose of God. In the Psalm 24, We have there, and we sing it, and I trust we believe it, and we sing it sincerely, chapter er, Psalm 24. uh, There we have the question asked, who is the king of glory? Lift up the gates to let the great conqueror, he goes forth conquering and to conquer. It's as though he's returning to his kingdom. And the heralds are saying, open up the gates. The conqueror has returned. Who is this king of glory, verse 8? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. This is the king of Zion. Mighty in battle. He goes forth conquering. And he's mighty in battle and he never loses one war. He never knows any defeat. In the midst of all the events, the red horse is riding, the black horse, the pale horse, death and hell, devastation. What a chaotic scene on the surface it seems to be. But it's all in order. Seven is stamped right through the whole book. Seven is stamped in everything in his kingdom. It's all in order. And that's how the child of God should look out in the world, no matter what is happening. Our king is reigning. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Gracious and eternal God, bless thy word to us. Open our eyes that we might see our glorious king. O do thou deliver us in our dark day from discouragement and despair. May we see the one who is ordering everything and overruling everything to bring to pass his own sovereign redemptive purposes. Be pleased to hear us, pardon us, and accept us only for his sake. In whose name we ask it. Amen.